Hey everybody, JJ Bryce of the Buffalo Bread Podcast, finally back with you. We I tried in earnest while on vacation to record a pod that blew up, you know, epically, but I'm really happy to be back on. I'm very sad about the Buffalo Bills. Dan and I have a lot that we have a we have a lot to get through in our own therapy session here after the Cincinnati Bengals blew out the Bills effortlessly in Orchard Park uh, this past Sunday. We've got a lot to get through, um, and hopefully, you know, um, we can show you some bright spots. Uh, we can commiserate on the dark spots, and we can begin the long process of healing and getting ready for next year. With that, how are you feeling, Dan? Uh, super impressed by your your bright and poppy introduction there. You came in with some some high energy, which is more than I can say for this Bills offensive line. <laughs> Bills Mafia <laughs> needs something. They need we, we need we, something. We need we need we're just positivity. a rain cloud. Yeah, we we're need a big positivity, freaking. even if it's forced. That's what this is. I'm just like you know what? I can't like nothing I can do. No amount of like wallowing is going to change the outcome. So we just got to forge forward. Yeah, you know what? I like where your headspace is at. It has lifted my spirits as well. And we're going to trudge through some some very negative observations from yes. that game and, a, and what looks like a tough offseason for the Bills here. Um, and, you know, we're going to break it down and we're going to get into it. But um, I, I want to say... Because we we tend to be like the most negative Buffalo Bills fan podcast yes. out there, yes. with how critical we are of this team. I think it's important for us to acknowledge. And Brandon and I, in the last pod where he filled in for you in the Bengals pregame, we started to unpack it a little bit. Everything the Bills have been through this year: the top shooting, Pagula's sickness, um, unexplained health issues, uh, the injury bug, the deadly snowstorms in the region, Demar Hamlin. Allen's injury, Dawson Knox's brother tragically dying. Like this is a team, and I know all teams face adversity throughout the course of a season. This feels like a team that was absolutely put through the ringer. And because they were constantly dealing with some sort of challenge or adversity or something so out of left field, it felt like they never got a they never got to settle into the season. Uh, emotionally in a way that that could have carried them through. And I think you saw that on the field. I mean, Milano said it, and I think it was right. The team lacked juice. I I just think they ran out of gas. Like, this is a team that off the field was dealing with adversity, on the field was basically playing like every game was a game they couldn't lose because they were trying to keep the Chiefs at bay and win that that coveted number one seed. Um, You know, it's a team that just went through a lot and put a lot of pressure on itself. And it's important to acknowledge like how proud I am of this team getting through what they got through, still being like this this beacon, this bright spot for for this community in this region of the state. And um, you know, it was it was it was tough to see it end. And we're gonna talk about the realities of what the Bills need to do as a result of the ending they went through. But I don't think we should let our current pity in the situation of the Bills not playing this weekend and their season being over, overshadow or overcast. What an amazing team of men this group is and the things that they overcame and how proud as a fan base in a community we should be about them. Um, I just don't think we should bury that lead or let it go unacknowledged because we're going to dig into it. Yeah. There's stuff that's going to change, right? 
but I, but I don't think we should we should let that go unsaid. And in, and this is sad for another reason too. Like this is this Bills team has been good for three years, and it's something I think that we are lucky to have. But now because of contracts, because of guys progressing or moving on. This team is going to look very different next year. Yes, the core is still going to be there. There's still going to be Allen. There's still going to be Diggs. Von Miller will be back for another season. But the core and the heart of this team is really going to change. They've got a tough decision to make about Jordan Poyer, who's been an on and off the field emotional leader for this team. And this is something all teams and all fan bases go through. But this is going to be an offseason of improvement, we hope but definitely transformation for this team as well. So we shouldn't, as we we lean into the things about who should get fired and stuff yeah. like that, our, yeah. our typical nonsense, we shouldn't, we shouldn't lean so heavily into those things that we forget how special this team is and how lucky we are to have them and, and how hard it's going to be to say goodbye to some of these guys that are going to leave in the offseason. Well, it's so funny is because in the, in the ensuing you know, past two days, um, and it feels like it's been a month since they lost that game, just with the amount of like ups and downs and roller coaster we're aging, emotions. Yeah. We're aging in dog years over yeah, this exactly. game. Exactly. <laughs> well, because and and I also find myself I literally found myself yesterday fighting both sides of an argument with two different people, right? Like it, like I'm I'm in I'm in the internet comments and I'm on one side somebody's like, hey, fire everybody, and I'm just like, Are you kidding me? The Buffalo Bills haven't been as successful as they were the past four or five years in decades and now they have consistent successful playoff appearances deep playoff runs blah 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 blah. and i'm fighting you know that thing and then two minutes later i'm on a different comment thread and somebody's like everybody calm down everything's fine this is a 13 and 3 football team and i'm just like are you fucking kidding me they need to get rid of fraser right now this is like and i'm like wait what is happening who am i i don't even know who i am as a bills fan right now because i'm just vacillating between um, everything is okay because they are successful and this is a resilient team and the core is there and Josh Allen's amazing all the way to the other end of like, you know what? They're just going to f- exit the playoffs way too early every year with this current leadership. So we got to <laughs> make a change, you know? And right. I, I talked uh my, my nephew, avid Bills fan and, and big time sports fan texted me immediately after the Cincinnati game with like the scorched earth approach. And I just didn't answer because I knew <laughs> I didn't want, like I wasn't going to get into it with him at that point. Yeah, we should fire everybody. And I was like, Nope, Nope. I'm just going to let him sit with it. And sure enough, the next, the next day, like 7.30 a.m., he sent me a message and just said, hey, I've come down off of Rage Mountain. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's a there's a middle ground, right? And I think that you're right in that we are critical of the Bills team. We love them so much. And uh, my, my buddy Jeff put it perfectly. The game as a whole, he was not mad at the Bills, but as a father, he was just very disappointed. <laughs> that's a great way to put it you know like it, he's like he's, and he is a parent and he was like that's just what it felt like is when you're like you the most upset you can be is is like if your parents are like i'm not mad i'm just so disappointed because you're just you made a dumb choice or you did something you're so awful. much better you're so right. much better than this <laughs> you deserve better and you're so much better than this that was exactly the feel that that has summarized it better than any i, I could think of is we know the team is talented the proof is in the results from the season is in all that they overcame and i don't i don't discredit the notion at all that they just literally ran out i mean mm-hmm. you and i have both at different times in our life worked super high stress emotional jobs 
where we're working with people through the worst of their days, right? The the most stressful, the most difficult things to sure. deal with. And as helpers in those scenarios, and you have to keep yourself steady, you have to perform for the benefit of others over and over and over and over. That's team sports too, right? Is you're literally pouring from your cup to into somebody else's to get them through the next play or to help, you know, whatever it is to get you free your running back to shut down the run play so that your linebackers can, can spill like that. That is, it, it is service. These men are serving each other on the field and they just ran out, right? Like it, mm-hmm. that's just what it felt like. It felt like they had nothing more to tap into. And it looked like that on the field. I mean, I, the interior offensive line, including Mitch Morse, who I have a lot of respect for, they were, you know, giving up one second snap, snap to pressure Mm-hmm. Almost every place, somebody was getting blown up, and not just like, oh, it's a war of attrition. I'm getting backed up into Josh Allen, but he still has a few seconds. No, like literally just juked out of their shoes, spun around, thrown to the ground. Like it was manhandled. Yeah. I mean, manhandled. Yeah, they, they looked it, listless. Yes, they really did. It, it was the most physically we had seen this team dominated since I would say week nine in the Jets game. And I know the Jets game was a close loss because the Jets offense is not the Bengals offense. But from a a physicality standpoint, that was the most I had seen this Bills team on both sides of the ball in the trenches uh, dominated in a game um, of this nature. Um, We're not used to seeing the Bills lose by a couple of scores. Uh, We're used to seeing them lose close, lose in epic, dramatic horrible fashion right like all-time horrible fashion and and this was just dude this was straight up ass kicking that's all it was and i think what it showcases is that the bills are still a good team on the cusp of being a great team and i've heard this analogy you you know me i never listen before we pod to yeah. any buff any buffalo bills postgame podcast because right. i want it, us to come in clean right yeah. I, I keep it clean right um but like i'm also on social media and i can't and i've heard this analogy on social media more times than not which is the bills are 90 percent of the way there compared to the chiefs and the Bengals, who are 100 percent of the way there they've got to make it that extra 10 percent. and mcdermott and bean deserve a lot of credit for getting this team to where they are at that 90 percent of great threshold what we're going to see in this offseason and hopefully in the next season is are McDermott and Bean elite enough to get this squad from a roster build standpoint and a coaching standpoint that extra 10%. Because over the course of the last, the Bills' last five postseason games and their last three exits, they've been outmatched and they've been beaten by extraordinary offenses well-coached defenses not always the most talented defenses like and i think that's important to keep in mind this cincinnati defense is well coached they're not the most talented defense the bills saw this season um but this is a team that is susceptible to well-coached schemes on the other on the other side of the field and that's something i think that's going to have to change next year jj i think you give us a good segue point here to get into it and i think the the o-line is a reasonable place to start you had been on it all season, to your credit, um, about the deficiencies in this O-line. Not just the depth, but the kind of mishmash nature of the O-line build out here. We've got guys that are good in run protection, but not good in pass protection. 
we've got some lighter guys, more athletic guys, and then some heavier. Like the the offensive line build doesn't seem to make sense. And this was Cromer's first year in the o, in the OL coach position seat. Dorsey's first year is is offensive coordinator. Can make the argument that they inherited a lot and didn't really get a chance to build out the O line in the way they wanted to. That being said, the O line didn't perform all season. And it didn't perf- and it and it didn't perform again against the Bengals. So, what are some things that you saw in this game uh, regarding the O line, and what is your projected fix for some of these things in the off season? So, uh, the, I guess like I'll go in, in two directions. So the first thing is the build of the O line did it made sense to me more than last year. So more than last year, and even kind of any of the years that McDermott has been there the O-line build make, made sense, right? 18, Josh Allen's rookie year, it was probably the worst O-line they've ever had um, in my in you know my memory. Uh, 19, they started to kind of turn things around a little bit, and it looked a little better. Uh, 20, it looked better again, but it was 20 and 21 were the two years where the O-line didn't have any sort of identity. They had a mix of road grading, super big bodied offensive linemen who are strong, but not fast. And then fast, but not strong guys, a la Mitch Moore, Spencer Brown, even Ryan Bates to some extent. So this year, at least they finally had a a concept. And so the concept was we're going to have relative athletic score off the charts. All of our guys are going to be, the average is going to be like a nine on a 10 scale of relative athletic score. They're going to be good movers. The problem they ran into with good movers is that that means a little bit lighter, and that means um, more likely to not be able to set your anchor. So a 330-pound yeah. offensive guard sets an anchor, but is probably not the one that's going to sweep around the end and pin a linebacker to the inside. They just don't have the right. feet for it, right? And so this year it was like, okay, I, I guess I get it. Going into training camp, going into the season – Spencer Brown missed a lot of time. I think that really impeded his ability to make a step because he did. He looked worse this year than he did all of last year. I don't this looked like much, a regression yeah, for him, yeah. I don't know how much the back injury impacted that. He was playing very good ball at the end of last year, um, but very, very poor throughout the year this year. He had a few flashes here and there. So I wonder how much of that impacted it. But really it was, I was like, okay, I get the design. The design is we want a fast-moving, you know, a line that's going to run screens, sweeps, and other things better than anybody. We're going to pull. We've got a super athletic quarterback. He might, you know, get out of the pocket, and we need guys who can get out there and help him. I understood that. What then happened was they were not able to play to their strengths, either by design or by chemistry and performance. And so I don't know. I trusted Aaron Cromer would help guys take a step forward and, and, and really improve. That didn't seem to happen. It seemed like all of the offensive linemen played at whatever their their top ceiling was and, and never improved beyond it. And there's a lot to be said about that ceiling. So just to kind of, we've been talking about how the Buffalo Bills don't invest in the offensive line for years. And they mm-hmm. don't. And finally, I was able to dig into it today just to kind of look at it. They The Bills offensive line has one player since 2018 so the whole room the backups starters everybody there is one player that was picked higher than the third round since 2018 um or in the third round or better so one two or three that's spencer brown that's it 
Yep. That's all. Nobody else. Deion right. Dawkins, second round investment. Uh, Roger Saffold, terrible in pass protection. Was really, really, really awful. One of the worst graded offensive linemen in the league in that particular category. Even though he was posting tweets about, like, no sacks allowed. Yeah, you were giving up nine pressures a game, dude. But your quarterback he was could, terrible in he pass protection. He was a sieve in pass protection because he's he's done with his career. His career is over. He was an excellent player in his prime. He's no longer in his prime. He's washed. And if they resign him, that's just proof to me that they don't actually care about protecting Josh Allen. That they're just scrambling and trying to make a you know make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And so right. Saffold washed second round pick. Morse second round pick from 2015. So there's a there's also a notion there of none of their players are um, young players, young strong linemen um, right. who are able to to play in the, the modern NFL. Um, they haven't, and then they had three undrafteds, a six, a seven, and a third, which is Spencer mm-hmm. Brown. And Spencer Brown, their youngest offensive lineman, drafted in 21. Just, and you could throw yeah. you could throw Cody Ford into that mix too, even though he was traded partway through the season. He was a second round pick, yeah, second round pick, but a complete bust and total bust. The only higher than a third round pick Brandon Bean has made on the offensive line was a complete and it was a bust. bust, yeah, <laughs> total bust, like total bust for a second round pick. Um, and then you look over at the Cincinnati Bengals, who gave up like the most sacks in the history of the world last year, and on their line, they have through either free agency or their own picks, they have five picks or five offensive linemen of eight that were either from, that are picked more recently than 2018 and are from the first three, three rounds. Yep. Um, not the last three rounds, exactly. not the last four rounds. Right. Exactly. Not the last four rounds. So the, you know, it's, they've got a two and starting in the game, it was a two, a second rounder, a fourth, um, a free agent who was undrafted, a second rounder and a sixth. And Dude, they was... were huge too. They were like this was their backup O line. They yeah. were, I mean, they dwarfed that Bills defensive line. These guys were single, hog mollies. Yeah, not a single one of them under three hundred and ten pounds. That's the, just crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> the Bills offensive line only has two people over three twenty, but they're you know the, the weight of the line as an aggregate is not a great. It's not a great statistic or measure of their ability. You could get all the fattest yeah. guys in the league in it's, one it, line, it and it's not going to guarantee you a great rushing offense. It's to, um, it's a total optics yeah. thing, but I'll yeah. I'll tell you, watching that game, um, and I I, I never watch with the commentary on, just because even with Romo, who's great, but I just, I never watch with the commentary on. But there, it it, it took me back to um, I'm a I'm a grad of JMU, and they and before they went FBS, they had a ton of just battles with uh, like Montana and North Dakota, uh, University of North Dakota in the FCS championship. I remember watching the year they beat Montana and all of their O-linemen looked like men compared to the boys of the Montana defensive line. I'm like, right. this is what a mismatch looks like. Yeah. That look, it looked and it played out like a mismatch with how big and fast some of those O-line, the backup O-line for, largely for the Cincinnati Bengals were. Well, and the and there's something to be said too about you know we can kind of talk about not just the offensive line. What I saw from our offensive line, the Bills' offensive line, was of course they were getting beat on every pass pass protection play. Even if the, Josh time. Allen, even if it wasn't a registered pressure, that was Josh Allen creating a new pocket outside yep. somewhere. Um, and so 
There's that. And then on top of that, they were they were registering no push at all in the run game. They were not yeah. moving anyone off their spot. And yep. I know that the Bengals have some of the best interior defensive linemen in the league in B.J. Reader and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but I'll look it up real quick. Um, not Sam Hubbard. He's on the edge. Yeah, yeah he's on right? the edge. Yeah. But it's uh, – yeah, I'll get it right here. Um, Hill? Yeah, B.J. Hill and yep. D.J. Reader. So they they had an excellent push in, inside from the defensive side for the Bengals because the Bills were not moving anyone. They were not able to pin anybody. Um, the linebackers, Wilson and Pratt for the Bengals, basically filled wherever they wanted to and were clean because there was no scrape blocks. There was no second-level pressure at all coming from the Bills' offensive line. They, weren't even, they were not even able to move most of the interior defensive line plays one yard with a double team, which is like criminal for your starting offensive line to not be able to successfully conduct a double team move and move one defensive tackle out of the, out of the gap. When you literally have double the strength and man on that block, it was just so sad, man. It was so sad. And, you know, just as an observation in the game, the uh, Cincinnati Bengals offensive line was creating huge tunnels for mixing yeah. the work through. Um, and they were getting to the second level and they were nullifying some of the best, you know, that the Bills had to offer, even when they were sending sending Poyer downhill or bringing Taron Johnson on a creative blitz, you know, run blitz. It wasn't effective because the blocking was so good. So, and it's clear because the Cincinnati Bengals have been investing over the past three years, five of their, you know, five picks in the first three rounds. Yeah. Over that course, over that span, while the Bills have had one, um, because they just devalue it. Meanwhile, you have people like Boogie Basham, who his one useful play was deflecting a ball with his face mask. Um, <laughs> Burrow kind of threw it right, right in right. the direction generally of his right. head. I would his, credit that more on a Burrow, one of the few Burrow miscues than than Basham making well, a play. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is like if Boogie Basham was a mannequin in football uniform, he would have made that play. If he was not a living human being, he still would have made that play. That uh, and yeah. that was his best play. Um, that feel that and that feels like the one too because I, you know, I've seen on social media a lot of people digging into Bean's draft history and they're like, "Where's the Pro Bowlers outside of Allen? Where's all this? Where's all that?" It, the the draft history has been solid. I think he nailed this year's draft. We're going to talk about Shakir, Elam, and Cook in a minute here and, and the lack of rotational reps they got. But the one I go back to is Basham right after that 2020 season in the 21 draft when you've got a guy like Creed Humphrey, a guy like Trey Turner, just sitting, Trey Smith just sitting there. Yep ultimately get scooped up by your divisional rivals in Kansas City, and they literally have retooled that entire offensive line with premium picks and, and depth on their offensive line. A, a philosophy that the Bills, as you have rightfully pointed out, haven't showcased. But Basham is the one I go back to after you've already got Rousseau in pocket after the first round. That felt like you needed to give Josh something in that draft, and they didn't. They nope. didn't. They went... They went Basham, Brown, Tommy Doyle, I think. Yep. Um, we didn't have a fifth rounder in that draft. Nope. Then it was Demar. Yep. And then it was Richard Wild Goose, who's not, and Marquez Stevenson, who aren't even on the team anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's the reason is like I, I even made the argument like Brandon Bean has not drafted a Pro Bowler since 2018, 
and you know somebody was arguing with that like well, the Pro Bowl doesn't matter. I you have that point, of course you do. But what right. matters about the Pro Bowl is that people who are selected for the Pro Bowl tend to be above average at their position as the only measure. Like that's it, right? Like I know it's a popularity contest. It's not really based on anything statistical. Mm-hmm or analytical that that is reliable as a true measure of skill and people get passed over all the time who are better than the people who get picked sure but the people who get picked tend to be above average right if that's Mm -hmm. the only if you concede only that about pro bowl selections that they tend to be better than the average player at their position it's a reasonable measure and he has not hit on any of them and i think that the thing that's so frustrating for me is when i feel like aj epineza has you should never pick a player who has to change his entire body composition to be competitive in the NFL. Right. Right. That's such a gamble. Are you kidding me? Like you knew he was too slow. So you were, you made him lose 30 pounds and he's been toying with different body weights, playing at different body weights. What were you thinking? Like he was a player who won with power, but was not athletic enough. (laughs) And you brought him to the NFL thinking that losing 30 pounds most of it probably muscle was going to somehow make him a more effective passer. Like all of a sudden he was going to be a speed rusher off the edge. Like, are you kidding me? Um, and that, yeah. And that's Boogie yeah, Basham's too. Like yeah. they're both under, like they're quote unquote, good football players. Yeah. But they're bad athletic specimens. And there's nothing about the NFL that tells you that, that players who are um, subpar athletically will ever be, you know, better than average um, you know, players at their position. Like, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. You need to have the baseline of athletic prowess at or above the, the at league average at that position in order as a, to even have a starting point. And that's probably a good segue to talk about um, the next next little bullet point here in our talking points in the game recap, the deficiency in the D-line. So whereas Josh Allen was pressured for close to 50% of his 42 drop, uh, 47 dropbacks for the second straight week because he also faced a pressure rate against Miami of 48%. Um, Joe Burrow was not pressured at any similar rate. He got sacked once on his, I think he dropped back 38 times, 36 times, something like that. He was only pressured on eight of those dropbacks because of the offensive line play. Um and unlike our offensive line, JJ, our defensive line is a place where we have invested not just premium draft capital, but also significant free agency dollars as well. This is a defensive line unit that's the fifth highest paid in the league at $51 million this past season. Um, you've got Rousseau, a number one pick, Epineza and Basham, two second round picks, uh, at Oliver, a first round pick. And they were ineffective yet again. After Miller went down, the Buffalo Bills were top 10 in pressure rate before Miller went down. After Miller went down, they dropped to 27th in the league in overall pressure rate. Um, JJ, let's get into it about this defensive line. Because this is an area where Eric Washington, our defensive line coach, has been feels like given a new Christmas gift every year to play with. Be it a premium draft pick, big time free agent. And this is a defensive line unit that continues to struggle to bring guys down and and get home on the QB. And that was on full display. I mean, honestly, Burrow looked relaxed. I know they yeah. call him oh. Joey Burr for like the ice in his veins, yeah. but he looked like he looked like pretty relaxed in that game. Unpressured, um, nonplussed, I believe is yeah. the word. That's a good so word. let 
let's get into it about this. Let's get into it about this Buffalo Bills defensive line because this is an area where they're going to have some guys coming back. You're still going to have Rousseau, Rousseau, Basham, Epineza. Oliver is on going to likely going to be on a fifth year option, I think. Um, and then you've got Daquan Jones, who it, it should be pointed out missed the game with a calf issue. The only game he's missed this year. And man, the the interior of that defensive line really missed him. Like yeah. he had been a big contributor on and off the stat sheet all year, but his absence was really felt. So you're going to get your starting D line back, and then Miller will eventually come back healthy. The question is, is it going to be enough? Because this yeah. is a team that couldn't get any push, couldn't get to the QB, and for the second year in a row, going back to the 13 second game, like it, it was a defensive line who like waved at Joe Burrow as he stepped up in the pocket and made and made smooth throws. We saw the same thing against Mahomes last year. It felt a little bit watching this D-line like a repeat from last year's AFC Divisional game. So, JJ, let's talk about this defensive line and get right into it. You've already mentioned Epineza and Basham. What else have you seen? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't I don't like Epineza. I don't like Basham. I don't think either of them are good picks. I think they're both wasted picks at, in the second round completely. I I, I will stand tall on them and be proven right when they're traded away or cut uh, around or just let let to walk at the end of their rookie contract. Like Cody Ford. I knew Cody Ford was not going to pan out as a player midway through his second year in the league. I absolutely knew it. I was desperately hopeful that Aaron Cromer could get something out of him, but I could tell from watching the tape he was un, you know underprepared for games, overmatched athletically, and just could not, you know, make the transition. That and he never will. I, you know, some guys just don't aren't able to make it. It's the highest level of football. It's incredibly difficult. Um, and so I can never fault anybody for for washing out of the league because more players wash out than get to four years in the, in the league. You know, like that's just the the way it works. There's very few superstars. There's a number of role players who can have a long career, and then everybody else who's kind of bouncing around rosters. So I. Can, I can tell you AJ Epineza and Boogie Basham are not going to help this team in any major way based on what I can see unless they make an, an incredible meteoric jump. Like, think Josh Allen from 19 to 20. Like, that's the kind of talent jump that they would have to make where it's like, wow, that didn't think that was even possible for either of them to be contributors. Ed Oliver is undersized, and my problem with Ed Oliver is he can take over a game but he's good for that like once every eight games. Otherwise, he's a almost non-factor who has a play or two with a tackle behind the line, a play or two where he gets close to a sack. But he's not the he's not Aaron Donald, who he was kind of billed as coming out of college, out of Houston as a top ten pick. Um, he just isn't at that level uh, because he is too small. And that, again, that's the kind of thing is like without the baseline athletics you're going to struggle unless you're a supremely talented, you know, special kind of player. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that he's a very good player, and I think he'll probably have a long career in the league because he's solid, but he requires a Daquan Jones. Mm-hmm. You were, uh, gosh, you know, let's get, go get a time machine and pluck a 26-year-old Ted Washington and put him next to Ed Oliver. Boom, Seriously. Like, <laughs> we crush it. I'm already looking at mock drafts looking for a defensive tackle who's over 330 that could, we can plop next to Ed Oliver to take all the double teams and require the double teams because I think Ed Oliver one-on-one is still a very quality defensive tackle. Ed Oliver one-on-one is rock solid. I mean, he was getting doubled. I mean, because they didn't, with Jones out, 
they didn't have to worry about whoever was going to be playing next to him, be it Settle or somebody else. Phillips Oliver, Co- yeah, Oliver commanded a ton of double teams yes. that game. Every time I looked at like a replay of a long run on the broadcast, oh, there's Ed yep. getting double teamed again, right? Well, and that's the thing too is like he can even split double teams. We've seen him do it, but that's like that's so hard. Like Ed Oliver splitting a double team of two three hundred and twenty pound linemen when he's clocking in at 270 and he's you know six two six three that's like that's a tall order yeah that's like asking for josh allen to do one of those balls where he like feathers it over the linebacker and under the safety in a shoebox on the goal line to a diving receiver's fingertips like it happens we know it's possible but you can't expect it play in play out like you you know that's it's infinitesimally small chances of those things so um I think that's, you know, my observation of Ed Oliver. I think Tim Settle is a solid role player. I've liked him this year, but he's not offered very much in terms of um, run stops or pass, you know, you know, impact in the passer. Um, I'll say this. I've been a Rousseau fan and supporter for the entire season, and he may still have some capacity to be a premier pass rusher in this league. I recognize that he moved over to defensive end at the one year, one full year as a starter in college, and that he's still learning. And then I think Von Miller's absence in the lineup really hurt him because he looked much better in the, when Miller was across from him, not only because of the attention Miller garnered, that they could then shift to Ed and chip Ed, or I'm sorry, uh, Greg and, and chip Greg and those sorts of things, but also because of I feel like he played with a little bit more confidence with a you know first ballot Hall of Famer on the other end of the line. And the play that I saw, I own a, a, a Greg Rousseau jersey, and I wore it on vacation for the Dolphins game. Um, and <laughs> he, the play that I saw that I was just like, oh my gosh, Greg Rousseau is not there yet, was when he was chasing Joe Burrow. So Greg Rousseau is like six foot eleven, and his stride length is Joe Burrow's whole body. And he's chasing Joe Burrow, who's an athletic quarter, a reasonably athletic quarterback, um, and could not get him down before Joe Burrow was able to get the first down. I was like, that should not happen. Like, you're a condor. Like, how can't you just reach out one of your giant wings and swat this guy to the ground? But he couldn't catch up, and he, you know, and that was a, a difficult thing to watch. And it really makes me wonder across this line. You know, what we're going to see next year is, you know, Ed Oliver is still under contract. Um, AJ Epineza, Basham, Daquan Jones, all under contract. Tim Settle's on a one-year. Jordan Phillips is on a one-year. Shaq Lawson is on a one-year. Not a single one of them, all three of them played. Not one of them had what I believed was a good game. Um, But I think they have good games in them. I wouldn't be opposed to re-signing Shaq Lawson as a rotational piece. I still like him, um, you know, coming in for... Rousseau or Miller occasionally to, to give them a spell. Um, but uh, I just, I have no confidence in Epineza Basham or even, I mean, even settle at that point. Jordan Phillips. They were had, playing. Yeah. They were playing Kingsley over those two at yes. the end of that game, right? A, pra- a practice yeah. squad elevation. Yeah. I mean, that shows you what the coaching staff thinks yeah. about them. I mean, so, so, but, but like these are, these guys represent resources. Yes. Be it in money or draft capital. I think it is worth asking the question, where is the Bills process broken? Is it in talent evaluation? Because Greg Rousseau was a first-round pick. 
but his teammate at Miami, Jalen Phillips, who plays for the Dolphins, looks to be the superior player at this point. Phillips had a breakout second year here this year after a really solid rookie campaign of eight sacks, and that dude looks like he's ascendant. Rousseau looks like he is peaked and plateaued. So to me, that doesn't necessarily scream talent evaluation all the time, as opposed to talent development. Do we need to start asking some tough questions about, we have a defensive-minded head coach in Sean McDermott, a great defensive coordinator in Leslie Frazier, though we will talk about the tiredness of his scheme here in a little bit. Like, at some point, doesn't the lack of development of these pieces fall on the coaching staff that, that aren't helping these guys reach their full potential? Well, I've had questions about Eric Washington as, you know, a defensive line coach since he was hired. I think, you know, he was a failed defensive coordinator in Carolina. Um, he, of course, had the, uh, the connection uh, to Sean McDermott. And, you know, I believed at the time, I was like, okay, he was elevated to defensive coordinator for a piece and uh, didn't make that work. But, like, that people who get that opportunity usually are pretty good at a, as a position coach, right? Like using the, doing the job, the, the level below what you were hired for, um, you should be able to, to kind of crush it. I haven't seen him do a great job of developing any of these players to any reasonable level. I think that previous coaching staffs did a better job of developing young talent. And I'm, I'm thinking of the coaching staff immediately preceding the Rex Ryan debacle um, I thought they did a fine job. I mean, they had Kyle Williams. They coached up a fifth rounder to be, you know, one of the better players during the drought era. Um, they were able to get Mario Williams and squeak out his best season since the, his second year in the league. You know, for they squeeze squeeze the best out of Jerry Hughes yeah. too. I mean, and listen, this is going to be this is going to sound like cheap hot take podcast fodder, right? But Jerry Hughes, when you look at his regression, I mean kind of started when McDermott and the squad took over. I mean, he had his best years prior to McDermott, who is a very good defensive coach, and this staff coming in. Um, I think it's a fair question to ask at this point. And I think if I'm being, it's something I've got to at least consider as I look at the staff makeup of this group. If I'm being, I'm not weighing it on scheme. But McDermott and Frazier have to have an honest conversation about that. But I do think if I'm buying the groceries and the meal's not coming out the way that I expected it to, at some point i got to look at the chefs. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's analogy. Washington, Frazier, and McDermott. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great analogy. And I, and I, I do quite, you know, I think for me the biggest question is like, we know that the collaborative way that the Bills approach the draft from watching the behind-the-scenes draft stuff and like the coaches are all in the room, right? They all have a say. They all have the... When they're stacking the final board, the the scouts lead the meeting and designate the final board, but the coaches get to chip in, right? Like they get to read the reports, they get to, to help stack, help prioritize, and I, I I just can't believe that players like Basham, Epineza, um, you know, the lack of growth we see in Oliver, even Rousseau, Basham, Epineza. Um, from their time on on task and like you said Hughes had his best years uh and then went to a trash Houston team and all of a sudden had a resurgence right and like was looking really good 
Yeah, he got he ended up with eight sacks, yeah. which you still owe me bourbon, by the I way. Know. But he got eight sacks. <laughs> the, the bourbon bets are piling up on me. I gotta send you a case soon. I think at this point they realize. Yeah. Hey, did you get that Instagram reel I sent you for the next bourbon bet? The wood cutting sword. That no. I want. That I sent <laughs> right. you a reel. Right. Sent you a reel. Of a woodcutting sword. This is great That's radio. the next spell. Hey, did you get my message about the thing that I want you to buy me because you about keep losing your, your bonehead bets? Um, it's a freaking sword, man. Like, All right, that is that is good podcast content. I appreciate. Yeah, no, we'll. Uh, I'll 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 find it. I'll I'll reshare it on our Instagram for the pod. Perfect. Um, so anybody listening who you know, if you don't follow, go follow our Instagram and you'll see this cool cool ass woodcutting sword um, as a promo for this pod. Oh. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and this is and in the defensive line, I think we've brought this up. It, this is an area where the Bills are not going to have a lot of financial flexibility to add. So when you talk about all the guys that'll be returning, they might resign Lawson, as you had mentioned before. Um, they're going to have to get some some vet minimums to work out that rotation because we know they like to rotate guys in and out. They're coming to a point where unless Bean does something magical through free agency, that they're gonna they're not gonna be in a position where they can put a lot of draft capital towards the D line. Cause on paper, right now, that's the most financially locked in room that they have outside of QB. Um, they've got bigger questions to answer in some other areas. So it's that's the unit where it's not gonna be addition through yet another high priced free agent. Like there, there's got to be something done about the coaching and the development around these guys because you're going to need Basham, Epineza, Russo, and Oliver to really take that next step next year. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing that's really hard um, with the defensive line is they have invested so much, right? They've put second just, round picks over first and second round picks and huge, huge cap dollars into Von Miller and decent cap dollars into Quan, you know. Jones and Ed Oliver at this point with his fifth year option as a first round pick. It yeah, it's so for me this this is what I believe. Um and I know we're gonna talk about this some more kind of as we continue the postmortem on the season. Uh I believe that the pieces they have on the defensive line, maybe with an additional mid round pick in that kind of center of the defense gobble up, you know, double teams role, might be um that might be it, right? We might stand pat with that. But we'll need to make, as you said, we we might need to ask the chefs to prepare the ingredients differently because right. the what they produce on the field can't just be Von Miller's, you know, preternatural ability to ghost dip his shoulder and phase through people in the fifth dimension. Like they right. they might have to like come up with ways to and I don't think that Leslie Frazier I, I know we saw Leslie Frazier do some interesting creative blitz schemes delayed blitz with milano delayed cb blitz stuff like that actually it was stuff that the cincinnati Bengals used against josh allen masterfully right like yep. just masterfully were able to get the offensive line for the bills to stretch out a little bit and then shoot the gap boom allen's mm-hmm. on the ground can't even escape and so we saw some of that happening but not enough and not with any consistency and we also saw that good quarterbacks were able to read and diagnose and you know take advantage of those vacancies in the in coverage um also to a to a ma- you know masterful effect so i really do think you know it it's the the pieces can't aren't probably not going to change that much i can't see them adding any free agents 
to that group. I can't see them adding a high draft pick to that group. I certainly hope they don't. Um, just, yeah, we, we I, need we need other help, and we'll talk about our priorities in a minute here. Um, but I, I do think that they're going to have to ride with the defensive line they've got. Hope that the injury bug isn't as nefarious as it's been this season. Hopefully they, I mean, even if they move back towards the average in terms of games lost to starters, that'd be good. Somewhere in the 15 to 20 because they were hot, top five all season, basically. Yep. And that you, uh, you mentioned Frazier's scheme and you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned some of the predictability, I think is a, a good way to phrase it. Um, where he did some interesting stuff at the line, but then his stuff in the secondary was was mostly the same. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's hop to, I know we got wide receivers coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but let's finish out the defensive side of the ball here. And let's talk about the lack of production from the secondary, JJ. So this is a team that has struggled against um, slightly above average to elite tight ends. This is a team that, doesn't really turn you over in the secondary. They, as we noted on this podcast, 14 total turnovers in the first six games, only 10 to finish out the season in the last 11 games. They didn't produce a turnover here. This defensive, the defensive backfield only made two plays on the ball, two total pass deflections for the entire game. Um, and we're talking just the secondary, just the DBs, not the linebackers, not Boogie Basham and his face mask, right? Um, this is a team that lacked ball skills, l- was sticky in coverage, but lacked the ability to challenge at the point of catch. And we saw Trey White, who was struggling to come back, I think, properly from an injury as well. But JJ, I got to tell you, what epitomized this game for me is the stuff we've been screaming about all season. And it is the way they don't challenge at the line of scrimmage opportunistically or judiciously when the time calls for it. There was a third and seven and the Bengals were driving in Bill's territory. Everyone's line, the front seven are lined up at the line of scrimmage. You know, Frazier is bringing heat on this because he wants to turn it over, right? So, you know, Burrow is not going to have any time to get the ball out because the Bills are sending more guys than they can reasonably block. I look to the outsides. I look to the outside, and I see Jamar Chase on a third and seven with a nine-plus-yard cushion from Trey White. And I turn to my wife while I'm watching with him, like, this is going to be a first down. I'm like, how do you know? I'm like, because I have watched the Buffalo yeah, Bills play defense yeah. for the last three years. And so the sure, Cincinnati and, Bengals. <laughs> yep. And so is everybody, yeah. right? So you send seven guys— Trey White is sitting beyond the sticks. Yep. The ball predictably goes to Chase. It's a quick, like maybe a second and a half, five yard out, that he then easily turns around and scampers two more yards to get the first down before White can even lay a hand on him. It's that kind of stuff that will infuriate me for forever. I am not saying you should always play press man because that's high risk, high reward. Yeah. But something the secondary and the pieces that we have need better scheming to put them in a better situation. We don't have a team of Trey Whites out there. We don't have a team of Sauce Gardeners out there that can execute so perfectly at an individualistic level in coverages like that. They need the coaching staff to help them out. And in a situation like that, Trey White was not helped out by the scheme. I, 
Listen, <laughs> I, I, I listen. I love, I love Leslie Frazier. I love yeah. Leslie Frazier. I respect him. I, I think, but yeah. yeah, but going back to last year and going really going back, going back to the um, the twenty twenty AFC twenty twenty AFC Championship, right? You have seen a you have seen a sort of one track mindset when it comes to the defense we're going to play is seven drop seven into zone rush four and get home on the qb they this is a defensive scheme that has been so obsessed with stopping the pass that they've ignored their deficiencies and their ability to protect against the run this is a team that cannot stop a good running offense. They haven't stopped a good running offense by DVOA all year. No. We broke down, that down on the pod earlier in the season, yeah. right? Um, and you ask members of your secondary to then make up for that with guys like Taron Johnson being a missile at the line of scrimmage, needing to read, needing to read run defense coverages, right? While at the same time putting them out in these massive coverage islands where they're getting ripped apart by guys that are flat out faster and more athletic than them every year. The scheme that Frazier is running, it's not just that it's predictable, it is ill-suited for the roster build-out and the athletic build-out of this secondary. We lack an elite speed in the secondary. We did last year, and it was showcased again this year against Cincinnati. The scheme has not served this secondary well. It's not a secondary without talent. Trey White's great. I think Kyer Elam was underutilized this year, and that's something that I, I will never understand why they kept him in this rotation with Dane Jackson like they did. The minute that kid started building confidence and started to pop, they put him back in like behind Jackson, right yeah. when he was looked like he was finally getting a smoke under him. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just I, the the scheme didn't help this secondary they ask this secondary to do a ton at every level of the game and i think to some extent that falls on the coaching staff because it hurt this group's ability to focus on the one thing they really need to do which is stop joe burrow right yeah. and stop some of these quick outs everyone knew with a backup offensive line he was going to want to get the ball out in 2.5 seconds everyone knew he was going to go one two in his progression and get the ball out and 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 the buffalo bills secondary and the scheme was very accommodating they had guys running in space all game hayden hurst looked like travis kelsey in this game i just they fail to account for tight ends leaking out they fail to account for crossers against the middle they tremaine edmonds who you said i think very properly in text that guy should be used as a sword, not a shield in coverage. Yes. And you and I have talked about how he has misused in that coverage scheme, and it reared its head again against an, another elite QB. The secondary continues to lose in the same way year after year after year. And I think it falls more on the scheme not doing a service to the players than it does the overall talent in the secondary. I do. I just yep. do. So it, it reminds me, I'm, I'm really loving your chef meta, metaphor. And so yeah, it's gonna, a good I'm, one. I'm going to riff yeah. on that a little bit. It, it, so Leslie Frazier has spent so much of his life trying to cover up the flavor of Spam with seasonings and sauces that he doesn't know how to prepare a filet mignon. 
He <laughs> okay. has, he, no, like, just bear with me. He okay. has, he has premium ingredients to make something delicious. He's got a first, and I don't know how much of this is McDermott, I don't know how much is Fraser. Kyrie Elam has the physical gifts and skills to be an excellent coverage corner in Absolutely. almost any deliverable they ask him to do. They just have to accept, like you mentioned earlier in the pod, the Kansas City Chiefs have accepted this. There, you know, there are growing pains with a rookie CB. Yeah, you can't just lean on the fact that you're you have this bend but don't break defense and try to like keep using the spam recipe on the expensive ingredients, right? Like, and that's the that's the problem that I see too. I I know that the player you're talking about with Chase. And that first down, I saw it as well. Everybody saw it. People are screenshotting it all over social media right now in Bills Mafia because it is exactly that is the defense that lost them the 13 seconds game last year. Yep. It is, we're not going to do anything risky because risky we don't want to get beat over the top. Well, you're also then giving them the chance to take whatever they want underneath. They're, you're letting the offense dictate to you what yes. the terms of the engagement are. And they're faster than yes. you after they catch the yes. ball. And yes. they're bigger than you, too, yes. by the way. I mean, the we saw this all season. The Buffalo Bills at every level missed tackles. Yeah. People were running through them this season because it's an unathletic, slow, undersized group. It just is. And that's I think that's the thing, too, is that continuing to pick smart football players in the late round and plug them into important starting roles, you're always going to be playing undersized and under athletic, you know, and, you know, under speed. Um, And so there's a lot of pieces that where they choose to spend their resources is not working, right? It's not working right now. They are choosing to spend resources on the defensive line, which is the 27th best pass rush without Von Miller. Um, Von Miller, I think, is worth the money at this point because we can all see what that defense looked like with and without him. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like night and, so, and day. Yeah, that was a that's a good pick. You know, hope for all of Bills Mafia. I hope he comes back to one hundred percent of what he was when he left the field, um, and it gives us you know three or four more years of this contract at that level mm-hmm. um, without another long term injury. But he's getting older, so they're more likely. Uh, but yeah, I think that this secondary. It's not given the opportunity to do anything aggressive, because that's a you know they want to they want a busted coverage and a touchdown over the top. But Jamar Chase, if you don't close the distance on him, he's going to catch that first down every single time. And they're yeah. going to have a new set of downs inside your red zone. And I the thing I I keep thinking about this this Bills team is the reason they're so good on goal line stands is because there's nowhere to back up and play timid. Exactly. Right. Everyone's got to play up. That's yeah. that is the answer. Like that, and that what that tells me is that there the, there's a bunch of dogs out there. This defense is talented enough to shut things the hell down, mm-hmm. but they're just told to play tentative, and that's never also, put in a position to that's do it. Right. Also, why they're probably probably why McDermott and Frazier are responsible for the worst tackling team over the past five years. Every year, year in and year out in the NFL, that has ever, that's existed, right? Because a player who should be attacking to tackle, literally tackling and attacking sound very similar, is just playing on their heels and then what, trying to do rugby drag down tackles while backpedaling? Like, mm-hmm. you cannot play in the NFL and have success on defense in that way. 
And that is the reason that I think that they're going to keep hitting this wall in the playoffs is once they reach the playoffs, they're playing only very good offenses and only extremely talented skill position players. And those players are breaking tackles. Those players are Joe Mixon running them over. Those players are Jamar Chase picking the ball off a high point over top of their coverage because, again, tentative, not attacking the ball in the air, not attacking the player. Right. And, you know, you had mentioned you had you had mentioned McDuffie, I think, is who you're referring to on yes. Kansas City. Right. They're like other teams have figured this out. We're not talking about the sauce gardeners of the world. Sauce was elite coming out of college. He's been elite as a pro. But we're talking about other teams willing to let their rookie DBs, competitive teams, take their lumps in the regular season, knowing they're going to need some of that young, fast, athletic production um, out of their secondary eventually, letting guys grow into the role as opposed to holding them back and not letting them learn from their mistakes. You don't even need to go to Kansas City for something like that. Just look across the field at Cam Taylor Britt, a second-round pick for the Bengals, who showed out huge and had that massive pass breakup on what people are calling the Gabe Davis drop in the third quarter, right? But he was right, great defensive play, knew he wasn't going to be able to make a play on the ball, stuck his arm out at what he thought was going to be the point of catch, and disrupted Davis just enough to cause the drop. Like... You have to let, if you're going to spend this premium draft capital on these positions, you need to let these kids learn from their lumps. These guys learn from their lumps so that by the time they get to week 18 in the postseason, they're ready to be full-time contributors. And again, Elam was a guy who, this is a guy who you drafted for a game like this. You draft a guy of Elam's size and athleticism and strength to shut, to, absolutely run battering ram into a guy like Hayden Hurst at the line of scrimmage or Jamar Chase or T Higgins at the line of scrimmage. And they just didn't do it and they didn't trust him, but the scheme didn't help him with any of that stuff as well. Um, I don't know. I don't want to talk about coaching changes yet. I want to flip stuff to the offensive side of the ball real quick and talk about the last area that I think we need to before we actually talk about um, coaching stuff, which is the wide receiver room. Something that was touted as a strength for the Buffalo Bills heading into this season. Gabe Davis had his breakout game in the 13 seconds game against Kansas City last year with a record-setting postseason of four TDs. Um, and it never quite came to fruition. Um, Davis did not prove to be an effective every down outside wide receiver. Isaiah McKenzie never developed into the slot option that we thought he could. Drops hurt both of those players. Drops have been plagued Davis for his short career. McKenzie had a huge drop issue this season. The Bills got a spark starting in that Pittsburgh game with Khalil Shakir. Um, You and I touted Shakir. We were confused why he wasn't getting more time, even as a fifth round pick. A lot of a lot of draft guys had him as a as a second round pick, Um, and the Bills were just lucky to get him in the fifth round. He provided a spark throughout the course of the season in key moments um that Miami game also right we uh, me and Brandon talked about literally that game saving catch where he yeah. bails out Allen at the end of the game reaches up into infinity and pulls down a ball right um he was their second leading receiver in this game JJ with just two targets yeah. oh, two targets gosh. two catches for 40 yards behind Dawson Knox who had 65 yards the wide receiver room was two things it was it it never it never developed into what we thought it could be, 
But then the Bills, again, this goes to coaching, in the areas where they had a spark in Shakir, they went away from it. Not only did they go away from it, it's not like they were giving McKenzie these reps. They brought back the ghosts of Cole Beasley yes. and John Brown yes. to try to figure this shit out, right? Like, they were they were going back all the way to 2019 with this. And, again, it it speaks to... It's one of those things, what does it speak more to? Is it talent evaluation or is it talent development? In Shakir's case, I don't know how you you look at his production on the field and say this this is a guy who we don't want to we don't want to rush into a yep. role right now. Why not? He's the only guy doing anything out of that slot. And frankly, he's got the skill set to play um outside mm-hmm. opposite Diggs as well. I just I was so confused at how the Bills used him, like I was confused in the way they used Elam and confused in the way that they used Cook throughout the season as well. I mean, Cook got 5 touches this game to Singletary's 11 touches this yep. game. Maybe weather had a factor with it, but you you knew you couldn't protect Allen. You knew you needed a quick outlet, and they refused to let their best pass-catching running back into the game. They refused to let their most effective slot receiver into the game. Yep. And the only reason I can hear coming out of one Bills drive for why that happened is because they were rookies. Well, who gives a shit they were your most productive guys towards the end of the season. So I, this listen, this, I get, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so upset about I know, this. I know. I need to, I need I'm to so upset you, about this. I need this. to calm you down, but I'm not going to talk you down because I, I think you're onto something poignant, which is I, the only, the only way I agree with people when they're like, maybe it's time for a coaching change. Maybe McDermott doesn't have the chops. That's the only component of that argument that I actually think has some credence is that he tends, and I don't know how much of this is his decision, how much he leaves to his coordinators. Like we're not in the building. We don't, we're not in the meetings. Right. He tends to make mistakes by being too um, conservative. And like, he's had that trait and he's gotten slowly better at it with fourth down calls and punting Mm -hmm. inside of the opposing, you know, player or the opposing team's, side of the field like he's gotten better of it in some of those situations gotten better at it with his challenges but the thing he hasn't gotten better at at it with is by clearly moving on to the hot hand because he's got this broken sense of loyalty like why is Colby's lead back on this team like I know he had a he had a touchdown in this game um but he why is he back on this team like he's he's pretty washed and you can see it in that he's usually not as open as he was before he left the Bills, and when he is open, he pops up a you know interception to the opposing team. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I but it's that same sense of like, well, like you said, this a lot of food analogies. Maybe I'm hungry. They go back to their <laughs> comfort food, right? Like they're just they always going back to the things that make them feel warm and safe and soft, and that is ruining everything <laughs> because they well, I... they need to like take chances. Well, think, think about last year with Gabe Davis. We were um, heading into last season, heading into what would have been his second year. We were curious what the Bills would do a wide receiver because they still had Beasley under contract um, after the COVID year, so the start of the 21 season. 
we were curious what they would do at wide receiver and that's the year they signed emmanuel sanders and we were we were we thought that was a good fit because like bean had talked about wanting to bring emmanuel sanders on board since he started and it just didn't work out via trade so they had the opportunity for free agency it's a guy that bean and mcdermott were equally enamored with and you and i at the time were like well this is a pretty good call it's a it's another veteran presence but is it a point in his career where he isn't likely going to challenge davis who was at that point ascending right um for a lot of the snap share and it turned out to be the opposite like they relied on sanders when he was healthy and they kept davis largely off the field and i know he had that game against kansas city where he popped but outside outside of that game davis is really a been developed into this one-dimensional player so in the course of his development i even go back to his second season where he lost so much of his snap share to a a, a one-year rental in emmanuel sanders because the team had been enamored with this veteran player that they had tracked for his career they finally got to bring him on and regardless of what other path they had charted out for davis they went with their comfort food in Emmanuel Sanders, maybe at the expense of a young wideout in Davis and his development. And this is a criticism, I think, of being that is fair. And this is the stuff that gets you from the 90% to the other 10%. Every year seems to be a short-term personnel plan when it comes to player development. There doesn't seem to be a longer-term vision for anyone on that roster other than Josh Allen. Because if there was a long-term progression for player development, maybe you don't bring in Emmanuel Sanders last year. Maybe you don't bring back Cole Beasley and John Brown and you let and you rock with Khalil Shakir, this guy who was highly touted coming out of the draft and had shown spark and pop and speed on that grouping. Maybe you don't slow roll James Cook for Devin Singletary when you know what you got in motor. You know what his ceiling is. You know what his floor is. There seems to be a short-term thinking when it comes to some of the free agency acquisitions versus how they may adversely impact the development of some of these young players. And I I do think that's a fair criticism of Bean, that it— something that we're gonna we need to talk about i think more or something they really need to have a conversation about as an organization when we spend a premium draft pick on a young player what's the arc what's the development plan because it doesn't look like they trust a lot of these young guys year in and year out right even rousseau i mean rousseau yeah played a big snap share in his rookie year but he wasn't often put in these like schemed up situations they threw him out there and they were like go learn football yeah yeah. (laughs) you know and then they brought in vaughn to mentor him but really to take heat off him so that he could i guess develop in a vacuum like i just there doesn't seem to be a long-term strategy year to year for how to develop some of these younger guys trey Edmonds is another one we've talked about trey and his skill set never fitting the way that they really use him so i that i think is a fair criticism of this organization at the decision making level and something they really need to think long and hard about because now they're not going to have a choice poyer's likely going to be gone it is questionable if they're going to bring Edmonds back and they may be rebuilding in the middle of that defense 
you're going to have to say goodbye to some of these veteran offensive line guys that you signed to these one-year deals and and really trust some young draft picks because it's a bad offensive line free agent market. You're going to have to trust some of these draft picks to to start and do stuff. Yeah. So this is an organization that's got to have a better long-term strategy for their young player development outside of Allen, who they've hit and they've done a great job with. Well, and I wonder how much of that is what they've done and how much of that is what Josh Allen has done and Jordan Palmer has done. You know, like that's true. <laughs> how much is it their development? Yeah. How much is it you just got a good one who will, he will put in all the work in the offseason to perfect his craft. And he literally is their whole offense. I think that um, Mike Florio did a whole tweet, you know, thread. Have you seen it yet? I did see that tweet yeah. thread. I didn't read through the okay. whole thing, but someone it's, posted it and they were like, yeah. no lies told. So yeah, yeah, it's it's going, I mean, it's going all over the place because it is so accurate. It's basically just so much of what we talk about on the podcast is, you know, the Bills have not built around Josh Allen and they've put so much energy and effort into building a defense that has let them down every single year in the playoffs while Josh Allen has been asked to single-handedly carry the offensive production with just like one investment in stuff on digs, right? Like, and then a couple of third round running backs and that sort of thing. They added Naeem Hines. Um, and so it's, you know, it's such a, it's the problem the bills have is again, it seems like they're always coaching and drafting and signing and putting the lineup out there scared. They're always Mm -hmm. more afraid of losing than they are fired up to win. And they're more afraid that Kyrie Elam is going to get smoked for a touchdown than they are that Dane Jackson's going to give up every first down for an entire drive, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's the problem they have is that, and I think you're right, I think this is going to be a very interesting offseason, and I really hope people stick with the pod as we kind of work our way through free agency and the draft before we take our summer break um, to guide us along that path of, like, what the heck is going to happen? Because they are they have basically been working their way into this position now where they are bumping up against the cap and key pieces are going to have to leave and young talent, drafted talent, undrafted rookie free agents, people are going to have to come in and fill those gaps. Going to have to trust them. And not only are they going to have to fill those gaps, but there is not going to be a $5 million per year veteran that they can rotate with that person. Um, And so... That things are going to happen, and whether we like it or not, and I really hope it's not to the Buffalo Bills' peril and, you know, having a slump year, but they're going to have to figure out a way to get production out of unproven, untrusted players. And I'm I'm here for it. Like, I want to see, like, that's going to be a very, yeah. that's going to be a massive measuring bell for this, this coaching staff, the position coaches. Can they do this? Can they start the next year without the comfort food Roger Saffold washed late in his career and, and instead to have a fourth, third or fourth round guard, guard slash center, which I really right. would like to see, you know, some I would higher, lo- I would yeah. love to see that. Yeah. yeah. And, and not only that, but like, instead of some like Cody Ford, Ty Naseki, like rotating every series crap, you just put that dude out there and he is going to sink or swim. That's what most teams do. So many mm-hmm. times we're doing this pod and we're talking about previews, and especially when I get kind of down in the weeds and in the rabbit hole about offensive line play, I'm like, okay, this guy is a sixth-round rookie out of, you know, Nebraska. He is not good, but they're riding with him, <laughs> right. right? Like, right. he has an opportunity yeah. for Ed Oliver to get a sack, and sometimes Ed Oliver does, but sometimes that sixth-round rookie from Nebraska, he swims. Sometimes he swims through that whole whole damn game. 
Yeah, I'm deep in. I'm I'm already way too deep into uh into my draft build out and yes. my my big board and stuff. I will tell you right now, there are not a lot of interior offensive linemen that are rated as first round, right? So I could easily see the Bills going wide receiver, which I think I think they need to address another outside wide receiver in the first round, but second round going for a guy if he's available like uh, Osiris Torrens from Florida. Right. Hog Molly, 6'5", 346. Put him at the right guard spot and let him go to work, right? Like he'll make up for that that size of a human will yes. make up for a lot of that in- lack of interior pressure and push. So yeah. What, so what you're looking will... for is just for them to line up a bunch of tombstones in a Basically. picket line in front of Josh Allen. Can, yeah. can we get the Easter Island heads to be our new offensive line? <laughs> like that's what I'm looking for. Um, so real quick, JJ, because. I want to get into off-season, and, and for those of you listening, we're not going to do a full off-season breakdown today. We're going to phase this thing out. At the end of the pod, we're going to talk about what the schedule looks like. Today, we're just going to set the stage for the Bills off-season, talk cap, talk potential restructures, um, talk about some key dates with free agency and stuff like that. But before we move on to that, it is important to discuss whether or not the same coaches who are on the staff this year will be making these decisions in March and April for free agency and draft. So JJ, there have been a lot of calls on Bill's mafia for coaches heads to roll everyone from McDermott on down. I've even even seen some nonsense that Bean needs to go freaking ridiculous. Right. But as we talk about the bills getting from this 90% of great, which is where they are right now and the extra 10%, are there coaching changes on the staff that need to be made to get them the rest of the way there? Um, so I don't think that Ken Dorsey should go. I know that he's getting a lot of flack out online and a lot of people are saying that he doesn't do enough for the scheme to, to make the offense run. Um, he's a first time play caller in the NFL. Uh, and I think that that, you know, that's often kind of glazed over because he had the tutelage of Brian Dable and the Bills offense has been very good. I mean, points per game, yards per game throughout the season, even though, you know, we can adjust, we, we like to adjust and say, oh, there was inferior competition. They still had a very difficult schedule based on strength they schedule did. and they still produced, they still got above 20 points most of the games and you know, I think that there's a lot to say about what Ken Dorsey was able to keep consistent with the with the team and with their their opportunities. I wonder again, you know, how much of the decisions on who's on the field and who's inactive are his, and how much are McDermott's. Um, and you hope that potentially McDermott um, lets Ken Dorsey do a little bit more or have a little bit more freedom, if that's the case. If he's withholding, you know, if he's keeping Singletary in because they're afraid of Cook fumbling. Does Dorsey have the chance to, to next year, as a second-year coordinator, say, like, no, 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 you know, whomever we picked up in the third round that, that you consider the the strong, you know, reliable or Singletary that we resign on a cheap deal, like, whatever it is, is there more freedom there? So I don't think Dorsey should go. Um, I don't think that Cromer should go. I think they should just invest in the offensive line and invest in a higher-pick wide receiver top three rounds, right? Like mm-hmm. if in the top three rounds you went some combination of safety wide receiver offensive line or uh, interior offensive line wide receiver interior defensive line and they trust that they're going to move Benford, they're going to pick up a late round safety that they can make reliable, you know, backup, that, that's fine and good. Um, so 
I don't know that I want to really, you know, change too much in the offensive side of the ball in terms of coaching. On the defensive side of the ball, and we've teased this a few times, I'm, I, for one, am all for uh, Leslie Frazier hanging it up. I think that if there's changes that need to be made, um, Frazier retiring and moving on from the organization is probably one of the better ones. Um, I don't know, and this this will answer that question, right? Um, we've always asked how much of this defense is Leslie Frazier's and how much is Sean McDermott's. That would answer the question, out. yeah. Because if all of a sudden we have a brand new um, defensive coordinator in here, and the part that worries me is that they elevate from within, like they do with Dorsey, and then mm-hmm. we see a Frazier disciple, a McDermott disciple, doing this, you know, soft zone rush for. Um, <laughs> play to not lose instead of playing to win defense and we're you know nowhere we've, we've moved nowhere the needle has not moved so that's a change i'd actually kind of like to see and i think that that's a battle that's raging in the comment section all over you know the the twitter sphere and the internet right now of you know leslie frazier's had a top five defense in three of his four years um and so, let, yeah let let me let me give you some numbers yes okay because i'm the stats guy okay dvoa i mean dvoa football outsiders had the bills as the number one defense at the end of the season i'm like you guys do know that san francisco plays football too right like i was shocked when i saw that but yeah the the bill advanced analytics tend to love the bills offense because as you have or defense because as you have pointed out it is very consistent. It has a reliable outcome when adjusted for um, some of the competition that they play, right? DVOA is the adjustment to the average. When you get into the postseason, you are not playing average teams. And I'm going to read for you the last five playoff games, points allowed by this Buffalo Bills defense under Leslie Frazier. 2020 AFC Championship game where they got smoked by KC, 38 points. AFC wildcard game that you and I were at against New England in 21, 17 points. 2021 AFC Divisional, the 13th second game, 42 points. 2022 AFC wildcard against Miami this year, 31 points. In 2022 AFC Divisional round against against Cincinnati, which we all just are still recovering from, 27 points really should have been 34 points had that Jamar Chase TD not been turned over. Average points per game allowed with a two and three record in those games is 31 points. That is not an elite defense. I don't care what metric you are using. The only one that matters to me is did they win or lose the game? And the Bills are losing these games and they're giving up a ton of points doing it. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I saw that in the show notes. Um, it's. And it's it's true. I mean, it proves everything we've been saying. It's, it proves everything we see on film. It's that this defense plays bend but don't break, and it works awesome against rookie quarterbacks, backup quarterbacks. Play, Zach team, Wilson. Yeah, Zach Wilson. <laughs> it works against teams with without a single offensive weapon at their on their wide receiver room, a la the New England Patriots. It works. You know, it works against teams that are inferior because it is consistent and it. It does prepare you, you know, it keeps everything in front of you. You're not going to get beat over the top. I get all that. Um, but you're right. When you cannot come up with something new, in the, when you're not Lou Anarumo coming up with the, the scheme that shuts down Patrick Mahomes in the second half in his own house in the AFC Championship game, you're not 
gonna get to a Super Bowl. You're just not. Like when everybody can watch your defense and say, okay, we have the pieces, the talent, the quarterback, the wide receivers, the speed, the running back, the offensive line. We have the pieces we need because we are a playoff team as well. Right. To go after your weaknesses or to make your scheme hurt you, you're toast. You're toast right. when you cannot pivot and change. And the the statement that I'm sure everyone on the pod or listening to the pod is is tired of hearing when I say the defense is the defense. That's not championship winning defense. That's just it, right? Like right. the defense is the defense is a, is a gift and a curse. It's a gift right. that can I, get you to thirteen and three, and it can curse you to an early exit from the playoffs. Absolutely, Steve Spagnolo is not a better DC than Leslie Frazier, but he's got two rings. Why? Yes, because he saw the personnel he had. He knew the opponent in Tom Brady he was going up against and was able to adjust the scheme to be effective for the personnel that he had. He knew he didn't have any DBs that could cover. So you know what? F it. Let's bring everybody yep. against Tom Brady. And he wasn't afraid to pull the trigger on that. He was going to lose letting his guys play the game they were capable of playing, not the game he wanted them to play. And that's the difference between guys that get your team the extra 10% like Spagnolo and guys that don't like Frazier. Yep. So I'm I'm with you. I I if Frazier doesn't retire cuz they're not going to they're not going to fire no, Leslie no. Frazier. They they, can't. Just too, they they can't. He's, he's meant an too icon much in the yeah, franchise. He, he's a, yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not going to fire Frazier. But if he stays and he doesn't retire, there has to be a real conversation about a scheme switch for this organization. Yep. Um, when it comes to defensive scheming, they've got to really look at the personnel they have, the personnel they can upgrade with. They've got to come up with a scheme for that personnel set, not a personnel set that exists in, in, in some fantasy roster build, but the personnel that they have. And then they got to trust them to play to their strengths. It, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how all that stuff works out. All right, man. Um, Let's set up the postseason a little bit. Yes. We've gone almost 90 minutes here just yeah. in our feelings. Um, so let's set up the offseason here. So we're going to do this in multiple phases, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about the context. All we're going to mention here, cap space, key free agents, um, potential restructure candidates, and we'll talk a little bit about where they're at as far as their draft setup needs. Then you and I can break down some of their positional needs, what you and I think they need to do in free agency in the draft, and then we're going to save it all, save a lot for the next pod where we'll get into phase two, which will dig deep into the positional groupings we think the Bills need to improve on to finally get that, that elusive Super Bowl next year. And then we'll break down um, what are some options in the draft and free agency that we think the Bills could potentially go after. So, JJ, here's where the Buffalo Bills are at. Right now, the cap has not been announced, but it is projected to be somewhere in the 225 to $226 million range. That would put the bills currently at negative $5 million, so being over the cap by $5 million. The cap, in a lot of ways, is not real. We have seen this over the course of years. The big hit that's coming to the cap this year is Josh Allen. Josh Allen's contract is going to go from the team-friendly $18 million it was to that ballooned $39 million that it was. All right, so here are some key unrestricted free agents they have coming up. Jordan Poyer, who you and I have both showed, spoken of our love and admiration for this guy, but he's turning 32. 
He has suffered six different injuries this season. Doesn't feel like a guy the Bills are going to bring back. Roger Saffold, I think everyone will be happy to walk away with. Trey Edmonds is going to be has been controversial for Bills Mafia since we drafted him. Um, this is now the put your money where your mouth is year for the organization around around his development. Devin Singletary, who I don't know will have a lot of a market out there in the running back market, but the Bills see. Brandon Bean said today, seven Singletary is a pro. We love him. We'd love to bring him back. I'm like, shit. Sorry, James Cook, even though you're better. Um, and then Dane Jackson. So some additional unrestricted free agents that are uh, noteworthy. Jordan Phillips was on a one-year. Jamison Crowder was on a one-year, didn't get to play because of the ankle. David Questenberry, Greg Van Roten, Shaq Lawson, Bobby Hart, and Jaquan Johnson in that safety room. Um, as we know... Brandon Bean is a master of the restructure. So there are some easy restructure candidates that he could go to to get the bills back in the black on the salary cap. So Taron Johnson is scheduled to make $9 million. Ryan Bates is scheduled to make around four. You have Naheem Hines, who's scheduled to make around three. Um, Saran Neal is scheduled to make over three is primarily like a special teamer. And then you got Reggie Gilliam, who's set to make uh, multi-million dollars as well. You restructure just those guys, JJ, and you get to right around the $1 million plus mark. Then you've got higher impact restructure options. You've got Trey White, who you could restructure, Mitch Morse, Deion Dawkins, um, Josh Allen, who, like we said, is coming into his big money year. He's the big one. If you can restructure him down to the minimum from 39 million back down to 18 or 19 million, then you, all of a sudden you see a lot of cap space open up. And Stefan Diggs, who just signed that big extension, also a restructure candidate. The Bills will have money to play around with here. The question is, is where are they going to put some of those resources? Because their areas of need right now, I've got identified as offensive line, which we feel like is always on the freaking list wide receiver they're going to need to do something at safety and if they if they move benford to safety and they don't re-sign jackson they're going to have another hole in the secondary room even with white and elam being and johnson being in those starting slots next year they're going to need some depth additions there so um their draft position this year jj is 27th um technically 28th but miami had to forfeit its first rounder this year thanks to the whole Stephen Ross tampering stuff that went on and they've dealt a fair amount of trade capital this year as well they dealt trade capital for Dean Marlowe at the trade deadline and for Naheem Hines at the trade deadline so they're only walking into this draft with six picks and nothing after the fifth round so JJ let's talk positional needs really quickly I mentioned what I thought mine were OL wide receiver safety and cornerback so basically defensive back those are the three big areas I think the Bills need to address. But if they don't re-sign Edmonds, linebacker gets added to that list pretty quickly. So depending on what happens with Edmonds, or assuming he gets re-signed, where do you look at as the areas of positional need that the Bills need to address this offseason? Yeah, I think the, the top three picks in the draft um, need to be off, uh, some combination of offensive line, wide receiver, and defensive back. And that defensive back could be a safety if they know more than we know, you know, outside the building and they're moving Benford to safety, it could be a CB. This looks like another good draft for CBs. 
it looks like a decent wide receiver draft, and it looks like an absolutely poor offense interior offensive line draft. There's some good. It's a bad one. Yeah. the The one thing I will say is that there seem there seems to usually be a trend that a good offensive tackle draft could have some sleeper excellent guards. Who I mean, I think of. Um, I guess it goes the other way, but like Deion Dawkins and Cordy Glenn, two really good tackles for the Buffalo Bills, mm-hmm. were thought to have been probably better guards, but they ended up panning out at the higher money position at tackle. I'm willing to bet that Deion Dawkins and Cordy Glenn, you know, two Bills players people are familiar with, probably would have been pretty baller guards, or probably would be baller guards if they moved if they moved inside. But there's no point to because they have the talent and the skill to work outside and the, the athleticism exactly. for it. And so there's there's something there. I think that. Somebody with guard tackle flexibility who may be drafted by most teams as a tackle could be tried by the Bills in the interior. Mitch Morse was a college tackle and was expected to be drafted as a tackle, um, but had some versatility, so they bumped him into center, and he's had an excellent career, I think, as a center. So um, I could see, even though it's technically a poor interior offensive line draft, I'm not losing hope that they can find help for the offensive line, but it needs to be in the top three rounds, and they need to hit on it. Um, they have missed on all, you know, both of their second round picks in in the offensive line, and they just they need to hit on one. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, and and the interior is where I mean, listen, Dawkins did not have a great season this season, and right. we've talked about Spencer Brown and and his issues in pass pro as well. But where where Allen is really vulnerable, where a lot of QBs, quite frankly, that are mobile are vulnerable, is pressure up the middle. And we saw Miami to great effect in the wild card game, and we saw Cincinnati to just perfection act give Allen the impression that the middle was going to be open. And then because of the pliability of our interior offensive line, quickly close out those holes. I mean, manhandling those guys. And opening up holes, then moving our guys back and closing those holes, and playing really great QB contain. That's where a mobile running QB like Josh Allen is really vulnerable, is when you take away those holes after giving the appearance that they are there. And then direct pressure up the middle. Um, I mean, the Miami Dolphins feasted on the interior of that offensive line. I mean, they sacked Josh seven times in that game. Um, And he took a beating against Cincinnati with pressure up the middle. There was just nowhere to go. So interior O-line is something they've got to address. It is not a great free agency market either for offensive linemen generally heading into this season. So they're going to have to very likely expend a very early draft pick to um, first and second round to give Josh some help. I think rounds one and two in, in no particular priority need to go wide receiver and interior offensive linemen. Because if you wait till the third, fourth, or fifth, you're playing with fire when it comes to guard development. I agree. And I, I think that if you're looking, I'm just looking at the spot track list of available guards. Sorry for the pause. Oh, it's, it's spot exa- track it's, season. Yeah, it's spot track season, my friend. <laughs> the, and like the reason I had the long pause is my absolute disbelief that the second best guard on the list is Roger Saffold. Like, that is, is so bad. Are you kidding yep. me right now? It's um, a really bad... Yeah. It's a. It's like a down free agency class, too. Like, we're, we're going to dig into this more, but, like, 
some of the, like the Bills need a number two wide receiver. Yeah. Again, they're going to have to go f- through the draft, I think, for for someone. But here's some of the names that are out there, like DJ Shark, Alan Lazard, Juju Smith-Schuster, McCole Hardman. Like yeah. these are like DeAndre Hopkins is likely going to be on the trade block, but his cap hits 19.4 million, and it's unclear what Arizona would eat of that. And he's 31 years old. I mean. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to like their positions of largest need, O line and wide receiver, they're going to have to go through the yeah. draft, and they're going to have to. There's a lot of pressure to hit on those picks right there. I agree. I think that, and that's part of the reason that I think your first and second round picks need to both be on the offensive side and need to just be give a, Josh some yeah, help for the first time. Just give him some wide, help. Wide receiver and offensive line, you need to, to pick good ones. You need to, to hit on them, and I think that you know that's that's my my biggest hope is. Again, the jury's jury's still out. It's still too early. But I think that Kyrie Elam and James Cook are probably good picks. If you have that kind of success with your one and your two this year, um, with a wide receiver and an interior offensive lineman, I think we're we're in good. We're in better shape. You've Um, you've extended the Super Bowl window if you can hit on those things. Yep. Interesting. Interesting counterpoint. So, um, to wide receiver in the first or second, I think it's still it's still valuable and it's still important. Um, but. If Jamison Crowder's broken ankle, which is one of those injuries that people tend to come back from just fine, right? Even receivers, because bone breaks tend to heal better than, you know, soft tissue stuff. Um, If Jamison Crowder, as an unrestricted free agent for the Bills, comes back healthy, looks good in the offseason, and they work out a reasonable, affordable deal with him, that could change things a little bit. Because he only played a couple of games... And seemed to be able to contribute. Had a good rapport with Josh Allen, but it, yeah, it adds a component. I, I'm I'm gonna say if the Bills do that, I'll be highly disappointed. Yes. Not because I don't like Crowder as a talent, yeah. but he's a slot receiver, yes. and, and he he older. will be the he will be the Emmanuel Sanders yes. to okay. Khalil Shakir's yep. Gabe Davis. Yes. My answer to that is no. You rock with Shakir. He's the only dude outside of Stefan Diggs who could get any flipping separation from anybody in that wide receiver room. So the answer to that is no. You rock with Shakir, and you figure out how to develop that kid long-term because he is a talent. That kid's a talent. Yeah. So my answer to that is no. You le- The slot yeah. is Shakir's to lose next year. That's how you go into the offseason, the, no. the preseason. Yeah. See, I think you're wrong because I think it's going to be freaking uh, Isaiah McKenzie's to lose. I so because he's on he, he's under contract. Yeah, you know? he's under yeah, contract for a second year. It's yeah, but and that's one of my biggest freaking frustrations. Is every time somebody's like, "Oh, but Xavier McKenzie's gonna take a step." No, he's not. He's been in the league long enough. We know what right. he's capable of. He is an inconsistent, unreliable talent on the offense, mm-hmm. and an absolutely unreliable special teamer. Like that, he's a gadgety player that can do jet sweeps. And occasionally give you a 100 yard game if everything goes perfectly for him, but that's you know, yeah. I, I would love to see a four wide receiver set next year for the Bills that includes Khalil Shakir, a rookie, and maybe like a USC's Jordan Addison yeah. or uh, Zay Flowers from Boston College. That kid's fast. Right? Yeah, he's so small though. I, he, I worry he's, he's a Isaiah I, McKenzie. So's so's Jalen Waddle. Yeah, like Jalen Waddle is small. Yeah. Um, but, but like, I, 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 something like that, and then Gabe Davis and Stefan Diggs, dude, that becomes a speedy, potent, can expose the middle of the field 
field offense because we talked about that at length this team stopped exposing the middle of the field because davis can't get any separation on crossers right right? so all you can do is run them basically on a post route or a clear out most of the time and his drop rate his drop rate is high and you can't afford for him to tip a ball in the middle of the field around a swarm of defenders if you if you trust shakir and you add a guy like addison or the speed of a guy like flowers all of a sudden you can attack every level of the field again i mean it's yeah it's to me the first the first need feels like it's got to be in the draft help for josh when it comes to free agency i don't know that the bills are going to be able to make a very big splash unless and this would this would really send a message unless they go out and sign a big pass catching wide receiver right because knox his production was down this year i don't think he was very reliable towards the end of the season him and allen have really good chemistry but what what else if it's not a wide receiver moves the needle in that pass catching game it's a great pass catching tight end right so well it'll be interesting to wait and see how the bills yep. approach this stuff but we're gonna have a lot of time to dig into it oh man. yeah so let's talk a little bit about potting schedule so we are going to continue to pod weekly here for your buffalo bills obviously we're not going to do any pre-game breakdowns because there are no more games and i really don't want to admit there is still football being played without the bills so we're going to ignore it (laughs) and we're just going to talk about the bills off season we're going to pretend the whole season ended for all teams this past absolutely absolutely so as we talk about uh priorities for the buffalo bills next week we're going to focus on the offense so we're going to talk more in depth about o-line and wide receiver we're going to have a special guest also do a post-mortem for the the new jersey jets talk about what he feels like their team needs are a la to what we did with brandon and the patriots and then the week uh week leading up to the super bowl we're going to talk about defensive priorities and we're going to bring in one of our pals to talk about what they think the miami dolphins offseason plan should look like as well we're going to take a brief break after the super bowl and then we'll be back in march to talk free agency and draft all before our traditional summer break before training camp so please for the next few weeks stay tuned Continue to uh, like, share, and subscribe the Buffalo Bread Podcast wherever you get your pods. Google, Apple, and Spotify, and uh, have us be your most trusted source for off-season bills analysis. Uh, JJ, this was very helpful. Um, hopefully, we can continue to bring some solace to other Bills fan also in mourning. But uh, I look forward to getting into what the Bills can uh, can do to improve in 2023 with you coming up here in the next few weeks. There's always next year, unfortunately, as a Bills fan. <laughs> there's always next year. Always next year. So, yep, like I said, like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Apple, and Spotify. And as always, go Bills. Go Bills.